In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country uh, from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her t- two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would teach us. That You would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, our hearts to embrace this, Your Word. And that You might use it to bring conviction, to bring a strengthening of our faith, 
and encouragement in our walk with Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. Crossroads are, you know, that place where decisions happen. There are all sorts of great stories that happen at the crossroads. If we were in Mississippi, we could certainly talk about the crossroads in Clarksdale and selling your soul to the devil for the ability to play guitar. We use the term crossroads even in sort of normal everyday life. I was at a crossroads. I had to make a decision. I had opportunities before me. I had options laid out in front of me and I had to choose one of them. And you know, sort of implied there, that if I choose one, then I'm not choosing the other and this opportunity isn't going to be back again. I'm not going to have this option again. You get the sense in in Ruth chapter 1 that Naomi and her daughters-in-law are standing at a crossroads. Now, I don't think the text tells us that, but I picture this sort of dusty, dry, left town heading back towards Israel, but they've reached a crossroads and they stop. And this conversation takes place at, at just that crossroad. And Ruth is left with a choice to make. Will I go with Naomi or will I go back home? It seems like every relationship reaches a crossroads at some point. You've all had a a boyfriend or a girlfriend somewhere along the way that you just kind of decided this isn't going anywhere. And so this relationship needs to end. A a co-worker, this this job we're trying to start isn't going anywhere. It just... It just needs to end. Or, or you've kind of reached a crossroads and said, yes, I'm actually making a decision. I'm casting in my lot with you and, and you're the one I want to be my husband. You're the one I want to be my wife. And the relationship goes on from there. I, I picture in this passage that kind of a crossroads. Notice though that the way the author, the way the narrator of this uh, book begins Ruth chapter 1. You, you've got at least 10 years of life crammed into the first five verses with only enough detail to get you to the crossroads. Naomi had a husband. There was a famine in Israel. They went to Moab. Her husband died. Her two sons who went had gone with them to Moab They marry Moabite women. They live there at least 10 years and then her two sons die. And and that's kind of... It's it's 10 years at least of life crammed into just five verses and the whole goal is to get you back out of town to that dusty cross street. There's no... There's no judgment. There's no evaluation. There's... There's nothing in the narrator's voice that says, oh, and by the way, they shouldn't have done this or they should have done this or you're left to make that call yourself. And then we get 13 verses describing one conversation at the crossroads. 13 verses given to this one interaction. 
here's a here's a side point, by the way. Here's a, here's a tip. Uh, you're reading through uh, the Bible and you're noticing that the author skips over a lot of details and you're kind of going, time out, hold on, I've got questions. And he skips over those details and ignores your questions to get to this rather lengthy section describing one conversation. You can pretty much count on the fact that the details are not as important as that conversation. The narrator wants to get you, here's the background you need. Here's what you need to know and understand because these things are true and important for this conversation at the crossroads. But it's the conversation at the crossroads that really matters. They've started back towards Israel. Uh, word has, has gotten to them that... Um, that, that the Lord is now blessing Israel, that there's now food there, that the famine is over. And so then we see Ruth's response to this conversation with her mother-in-law. And the reality is Ruth's reaction, Ruth's response to Naomi is actually a, well, it's, it's a lot like a Moabite membership vow. It's, it's a primitive membership vow. We, we could claim, some of you heard these this morning, you'll hear them in a few minutes, you'll hear them eventually. You've heard our membership vows here at Grace Covenant, they're the same vows for every PCA church. They actually are kind of rooted in this passage. Because we see them play out in Ruth's life. Notice, first of all, that Ruth commits to the person of God. Remember who she is. She's a, a Moabite. She's a, a foreigner. She's not an Israelite. She's, she's a Moabite. She's a descendant of Lot, Abraham's nephew. Lot is, and his daughters and his wife too were delivered from Sodom, Gomorrah, and all their wickedness. Mrs. Lot turns and looks back. She turns to this pillar of salt. And Lot and his two daughters in Genesis 19 uh, leave. They find safety. In the very next passage in Genesis 19, Lot's daughters get their father drunk so that they can turn, take turns sleeping with him and having children by him. He's spared from sexual immorality in Sodom and Gomorrah only to then turn right around and engage in it in the very next chapter. The product of the oldest daughter? The Moabites. These are descendants of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter. He didn't know she got him drunk. He's not innocent. By any stretch of the imagination. But these are, Ruth would be a descendant of, of Lot. She's a, a Moabite. She's a pagan. She's a, a foreigner. They worship gods of, of nature. And frequently that, um, that worship experience involved uh, things of, of illicit temple prostitution and more. 
They're outside of God's covenant promise. They're not the recipients of God's promised covenant blessing. You need to understand, by the way, when you're reading through the Old Testament and people are commanded not to marry foreigners, that does not mean Americans can't marry Spanish people or French people or Africans or South America. I mean, it's, it's covenant community or outside of the covenant community. That's the distinction. That's the difference being made uh, throughout the Old Testament. The reality is, Naomi's sons married foreigners. They married outsiders. They, they married people who were outside of the covenant community. And yet, despite that background, Ruth comes to a very different, perhaps through Naomi herself, to a very different understanding of Jehovah, of the one true God of the Bible. And she commits herself to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at verse 17. She takes on her lips. She's she's committing to Naomi. You hear these verses frequently in weddings. They have nothing to do with a marriage. That's not the context at all. Where you die, I'll die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more. She's using God's covenant name. I'll remind you again. We'll do this again. Uh, We do this frequently. When in your English Bible you see Lord in all capital letters, that's the English translator's way of communicating to you. This isn't the generic word God. This isn't the generic word Lord for master type. But this is actually God's covenant name. This is Yahweh. This is Jehovah. This is how the English translators communicate to us that Ruth took on her name, that very special name of God given to His people and to His people alone. I have been... I look forward to doing this here one day. Uh, The last two churches I've been in, uh, and we're going to make this three in a row at some point. Um, While I was on staff, we had sidewalks put in, um, cutting from sort of one building to another. Uh, One was sort of a a sidewalk heading a different direction from the office building to a different end of the the main building over towards the gym. One was from the back of a Sunday school class around to the back of the church building where the nursery was. And so it just made it easier to go pick up kids from nursery and stuff. Both times I went out and wrote. The first time they're putting the sidewalk in and and the senior pastor and I went out and started writing verses, uh, etching verses in the edge of the sidewalk. Uh, both times I wrote, because, it's, because the sidewalks were heading towards Sunday school nursery space, Genesis 17, 7 and 8. Where God promises to Abraham, I will be God to you and to your descendants after you, to your children after you. It's that covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants. Ruth takes those words on her lips in this chapter. May the Lord do to me and more if anything should separate us 
Your people shall be My people and your God shall be My God. She's using covenant language. She identifies with the person of God. She's making a commitment to the person of God. She could say God. You interact with people all the time who say, yes, I believe in God. But you immediately have a question right on the back of that, right? Describe Him for me. Which one? The God of the Moabites? Molech, who would, who would gladly accept your children as sacrificial offerings? Would you, would you, is that the God you're worshiping? You, you're immediately left thinking, well, hold on, describe Him. But when someone says Yahweh, Jesus, uses a very specific covenant name, you can make that distinction. For that matter, I'm a father. All of you can say that I'm a father. Only three of you, and only two in this room, can call me daddy. It's that difference. It's that distinction. She takes that covenant language on her lips and commits to a personal, loving, relational God. But notice, she's also making a commitment to the people of God. Not just the person of God, but to the people of God. She now looks at Naomi and says, your people are now my people. This is a foreigner. This is an outsider. This is someone who, when she gets to Israel, the really good Israelites will sort of kind of squint their eyes and turn their heads sideways like, what are you? You're not... You, you don't belong here. Their initial reaction is going to be, I think you're in the wrong room. This isn't the right place. So your people are now my people. I'm identifying... Not with my family, not with my parents, not with my heritage, not with my genealogy, not with the, the rest of the Moabites. I'm yours. And everyone that comes with you, they're now mine. That's a church membership vow. When you commit to joining a church, you're saying, I'm taking everybody that comes with it. Different Maybe even strange as they may be, as I was called this morning. <laughs> God's people become your people. And the reality is, when you identify with new people, you actually have to shut off other relationships. There are relationships out there that you have to be willing to say, I have to cut this off because this is unhealthy for me. Because I identify more with the blood of Christ than my family, than my cousins, than my next door neighbor, than the people I've been best friends with my whole entire life. Those who were outside of the kingdom and opposed to God, yet those relationships change. And so Ruth 
in verses 16 and 17, she essentially looks at her mother-in-law and says, I want to be careful because her kid's in the room and they'll learn stuff. I don't want to teach them bad habits. But she essentially looks at her mother, looks at her mother-in-law and says, stop talking. I'm done listening. You can just stop. I'm not going to do what you're saying to do. I'm committed to your God and I'm committed to you and to your people. Think about it. When you get converted, when you come to saving faith in Christ, you now become what the world calls a Christian. You know, that was initially a derogatory term. The Christians didn't use that language. The Romans did. Little Christ ones. They were, they were lobbing darts at the followers of the way, Acts 9. And, and using it as a derogatory term. When you get converted, you actually take the name of Christ on you. You identify with a new name, a new people. You take the name of Christ and become a Christian, become a follower of Christ. And for that matter, you hear echoes in verses 15 through 18 of, well, of Deuteronomy and and of 1 Peter where Peter even cites the Old Testament and says, once you were not a people, now you are a people. It's, it's, it's Hosea scattered throughout various places in the Bible. Once you're not a people, now you are a people. Once you, you, you weren't sort of constituted as a people, but I've made you a people. And Ruth says, those are now my people. She's placing herself among God's chosen race, wants to be identified with them rather than with the people of her past. She makes a commitment to the person of God. She makes a commitment to the people of God. And then she also finally makes a commitment to the providence of God. Notice back at the beginning of the chapter, you remember why Naomi and her family left Bethlehem. Bethlehem, which means house of bread, There was a famine there. There was no grain. There was no bread. And so they left Bethlehem to go down to Moab where they could find food. They left God's promised land to seek food and provision for themselves. Now, I realize, as I mentioned before, the narrator doesn't, the writer of this book, doesn't pass judgment on Elimelech and Naomi for doing that. However, they left the place God said He would be. They left the place where God said He would take care of His people and sought that care somewhere else. I think they were in sin to begin with by leaving Bethlehem. I think leaving the promised land to go find their own way is evidence of Lack of trust in God's care for His people. In other words, Naomi's not a very good example of trusting God's providence. 
she's already left Bethlehem to go to Moab to find food and provision there. And she only goes back when she finds out word on the street, the water cooler scuttlebutt is God has now revisited Israel and there's food there. Okay, now we can go back home again. That's the language of verse 6, by the way. She's returning to God and to her God and to her people and to God's promised presence because she understands there's food to be had there. Ruth, on the other hand, goes, no prospect of a husband, no prospect of children, no prospect of care in her older age. Women in that culture were completely dependent on husband, on sons, and without that, they were destined to be destitute in reality. She counts the cost. She stands there at that crossroads and listens to Naomi and says, I could go home, I could have a husband, I could have children, I can have food, and and be with the people that I know and I've known my whole entire life. Or... I can go up there and be with people I've never met, live with my mother-in-law, take care of her, and I got no guarantee of a husband, no guarantee of children, and we just sort of... I mean, the gossip is there's food. She counts the cost and says, I'll take God's providence every time. Being in Bethlehem with God and His people was better than staying in Moab without Him. They had not much to hope on, hope in, except this gossip that there was food there. And notice, she also assumes a certain amount of of protection from Jehovah as she commits to going back to Bethlehem with Naomi. She expects, I mean, just in the language that she uses, she assumes, I'm going to have a place to live. I'm going to have people. I'm going to have a home. I'm going to have food. I'm going to have a place to be buried. That's no small feat in and of itself for a a widow in those days. She says, I'll take God's providence. I'll claim God's care and His presence with His people in His place and trust that He will provide, that He will take care of me. That's the place we want to be. That's the place you and I want to be. Trusting not in your paycheck. Trusting not in your skill, in your ability, in your wisdom, in your grades in school, in the amount of money you make, in the friends that you have, in your last name, in... You're glad that your last name is not something else. It's in God and Him alone. She identifies, she commits to the person of God, the people of God, and ultimately trusts in the providence of God. If you don't know the end of the story, we won't turn to the end of Ruth yet, but 
you could at least look at Matthew 1 and see God's providence play out in Ruth's life. As her great, 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 whatever grandson is Jesus. A foreign woman committing to the person of God, the people of God, and His providence ultimately ends up in the line of Christ. Let me make just a couple of applications uh, of this passage. First, um, some of you kind of got to, to see this earlier. Um, one of the one of the most enjoyable one of the most enjoyable uh, tasks of an elder is listening to membership interviews. Is to being able to sit there in the room with people as they talk of their faith and trust in Christ and their hope in Him and Him alone. And they take their membership vows and they say, we want to join this church. That's, that's one of the greatest joys of, of being an elder in a Presbyterian church. You listen to the testimony, you ask them the membership vows, the, the first three membership vows. I had an elder uh, once way back when who um, used to summarize them like this. Uh, the first three vows are A, B, C, admit, believe, commit. Do you admit that you're a sinner? Do you believe in Christ? Are you committing to, uh, with the Holy Spirit's help, uh, living a life that's um, consistent for a believer to live? The first three vows are about your relationship to God. And quite honestly, those three vows work at any church in the world. The second two vows, the last two, have more to do with your relationship to the church and to the body of Christ. Here's why I say all that. This passage, not a session meeting. It's not elders sitting around the table listening to someone's uh, conversion uh, story. But we're getting to hear a conversion story. We're getting to listen in as Ruth says, I'm trusting in Yahweh. I'm trusting the God in, in the God of Israel. And I'm identifying with His people. Those are the five membership vows. Are you trusting in Him to provide for you in your salvation? And are you committing to living the Christian life with these people. And there's something to be said for the fact the vows that you take at a session meeting are to be as permanent as Ruth's vow to Naomi. I'm dying there. Your people are going to be my people and only death can separate us. Ruth puts no qualifiers whatsoever on her commitment to God, on her commitment to God's people, on her trust in His providence. She jumps in headfirst and says, I'm with you and your people. A second application. I don't know about you, but I frequently feel inadequate as an evangelist as a as a witness for Christ it's it's easy for us to think i mean I, i'm going to stumble over the words i'm not going to say it right 
for that matter, if I say anything at all, because I mean, think of all the times you've just been too scared to say anything. You're, what are they going to think? And I don't want to offend them and I don't want to run them off. And, and the last time I tried to share Christ with someone, they basically put their hand up and said, I'm not listening. And they walked away and they said, I'm done. You can stop doing that to me now. You struggle, right? Tell me I'm not the only one. Promise me I'm not the only one. And then to top it off, you think, not only do I not have the words to say, but if these people watch me live very long, what I do and what I say aren't always going to match up. And they're going to go, but do you see what you... I mean, I know what you said, but I'm watching you and I don't know. Those two things don't seem to go together. Naomi, who left Israel, who left the place of God's promised presence is the woman who apparently taught Ruth how to trust in God's providence. You're in good company. I'd venture to guess you might even be better than that. But that's your model. I mean, all we have, if all we have is these first five verses, which remember could span ten years, we don't have any conversations, we have no idea what Ruth knew or understood... But she knew enough to know God's covenant name and to be wholeheartedly committed to Him. The reality is this passage, you lose a little bit of this maybe in English. I tried to emphasize it some as I was reading. Um, Here's another tip. You're reading the Bible and you notice a word over and over and over again. It's probably important. The words turn and return show up over and over again in this passage. The same root in Hebrew, same root in English, but there's this constant language of turn from me and go back home and return to your people. And Naomi's returning to her people, and Ruth's saying, No, I'm I'm going to turn and I'm actually going to return with you. The reality is. what you and I are called to do. To turn from the old and turn to Christ. This passage gives us a glimpse of Naomi who's come to understand I'm returning to God. And Ruth who says I'm turning and returning with you back to the place of God's providence and God's people. We're supposed to hear in that word Ruth's conversion experience. No, your actions and your words aren't always going to match up. Uh, Even in the face of sin, you may be used to bring others to faith in Christ. Naomi's not a great example of trusting God's providence, but ultimately she lands in a place where, where she says, I am going to change. I'm going to turn. I'm returning to my people, and Ruth says, I'm in. And lastly, you should know that that word turn is the same root for repent. That's what conversion is. It's turning. It's turning from sin to Christ. That's what repentance is. It's turning from sin to Christ. 
It's why we daily need this in our lives. It's why we do this every week at Grace Covenant because we sin daily in thought, word, and deed. And we need daily, more often than that, we need regularly, frequently to turn from our sin and return to Christ. If you're trying to save yourself, if you're thinking that I can by my own work, by my own goodness, by my own merits, by my own bootstraps, I can pick myself up, I can take care of myself, I really don't need your help, God. Then what you need is to turn. To turn from your sin and to turn to Christ. To turn from yourself and to turn to Jesus. To turn from self-reliance and to turn to humble submission to Christ. That's the picture of this passage. People who left Israel to trust in themselves, turning from self-reliance in order to return to God and to His people. This passage, and quite honestly, this table set before you this morning, call you to turn, to repent of your sin, and to find forgiveness at the cross of Christ. Let's pray together.